Welcome to the Outpouring Orlando Sermon Podcast. We exist to help people grow in Christ, share the gospel, and serve the community. Thank you so much for tuning in, and we hope you enjoy today's message. I deviated uh, when we uh, got near Easter and, and Palm Sunday, but we're, we're back at it, and so you can meet me in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And I want to warn you at the outset, uh, if you have children here or you're under the age of 18, um, this is probably where you probably should exit now. But if, if everybody's in children's church, then we're good. Um, I'm going to warn you now. You might want to buckle up, buttercup. Um, you got, might get a little tight, but it'll be right. Amen? Amen. All right, we're talking about the subject today uh, that no one wants to talk about, but everybody wants more of. All right? And, and so here's a wonderful thing about preaching through books of the Bible. You don't get to skip to your favorite part. I don't get to skip to you, skip through my, get to my favorite passage and, and preach my favorite sermon. I, I have to say what thus saith the Lord. So when we preach through books of the Bible, you can't say pastor's preaching that because he knows what I'm going through. I have no idea what you're going through, what you're struggling with. God does. And, and, and so we, we land here in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, our sermon series entitled Possible. If you have not uh, watched any of it, go on our YouTube channel. I, I suggest you subscribe, subscribe to it. This will be a part of... Uh, an anthology called A Better Story, where we're talking about the idea of sex um, as, as a Christian. And so watch Better Story Part 1, Better Story Part 2. Today's going to be Part 3. Next week will be Part 4, and then I'll get off, off the topic that you don't want to talk about anymore. All right? Um, um, but 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 through 16 um, is where we'll land today. And here's what it says. This is, this is the Apostle Paul writing to the church at Corinth. Um, here's what it says. This is in response to something that they wrote to him in a letter that we don't have access to, but he's addressing something that they wrote to him. And it says this, now in response to the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with the woman. I did not. You You had to be born in the 80s, 70s to know what I just did there. But because sexual immorality is so common, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife. All right, we're, going, we're off on the right track. And each woman should have sexual relations with her own husband. A husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise a wife to her husband. A wife does not have the right over her own body. But her husband does. Don't get offended yet. <laughs> In the same way, a husband does not have the right over his own body, but his wife does. Feel better? All right. Do not deprive one another. Interpret those tongues how you want to. <laughs> Except when you agree for a time. Notice the word when you agree for a time to devote yourselves to prayer. But as soon as you get finished praying, I'm just saying what the text says, then come together again. Otherwise, if you don't, Satan may tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Here's what Paul says. I say this as a concession, not as a command. He's not talking about what he previously said, but what he's about to say. I say this as a concession, not as a command. You do what you want to do with it. This is what Paul is saying, verse 7. I wish that all were, I wish that all people were as I am. He's single, but each has his own gift from God. One person has this gift, another has that gift. 
I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain as I am. He's talking about being single. But if you know, if they do not have self-control, they should marry. Since it's better to marry than to burn with desire. To the married people, I give this command. Not I, but, but this is not my pain, but this is what the Lord says. Not I, but the Lord. A wife is not to leave her husband. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to divorce his wife. But I, not the Lord, here's what I'm saying. This is Paul. Say to the rest, if any brother has an unbelieving wife, she's not a believer, she's not a Christian, and she is willing to live with you, you must not divorce her. Also, if a woman has an unbelieving husband and he's willing to live with her, she must not divorce her husband. For the unbelieving husband is made holy by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy by the husband. I'm going to explain that because I know what you're thinking. Otherwise, your children will be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever does leave, let him leave. A brother or sister is not bound in such cases. God has called you to live in peace. Wife, for all you know, you might save your husband. Husband, for all you know, you might Save your wife. Let us pray. Father, we thank you today for your word. We thank you for your grace that is sufficient for us, God. We thank you that we don't have to run from cultural topics. We don't have to run from anything, God. You fully address everything that pertains to life and godliness, Lord. And so I just thank you for this opportunity, God, to share in the word this morning. We thank you that we've been able to come together to worship. Uh, We just pray that Christ would be made known We pray that we will grow in our faith today. We pray that we will learn how to serve you better, how to worship better. We pray that you would just transform our hearts and our minds, God, that you renew our minds. Holy Spirit, speak to us as we participate in a sermon. God, don't let us just think about what is going on outside or at home or or anything else in life. God, I just pray that we put that to a side and, and, and we focus in and give you the worship that you rightly deserve. And so, Lord, we pray today that you will make us more like Jesus. We pray he will be glorified. He will be exalted today through our time together. It's in Christ's name we pray. And people of God said amen. Amen. From the sermon series Possible, a sermon title this morning is A Better Story, A Better Story, Part 3. Faith is the new aphrodisiac. Let me say that again. Faith is the new aphrodisiac. According to online publication, the Daily Mail, in a recent article, Faith is the New Aphrodisiac, highly religious couples have better sex than their secular counterparts. Let let me say that again because you don't think you heard me correctly. Highly religious couples have better sex than their secular, non-religious counterparts. According to a survey of U.S. adults done by the Institute for Family Studies, some 38% of married women and 33% of married men in highly religious relationships say they strongly agree that they are satisfied with the sexual relationship they have with their partner. That is significantly higher than the 23% of women and 20% of men in secular marriages who feel the same way. It also surpasses the satisfaction of men and women who are in less religious or mixed religion marriages. And so when they, they broaden the scope of this study outside of the U.S., 
They examined couples in 11 different countries. Researchers found that 68% of women and 64% of men in religious marriages report being very satisfied in the quality of their relationship. And so when they, we think about this study from the Institute for Family Studies, they were not the only one to do a study and found this same statistics. Here's what they, they, they studied. Study, they studied faith, faith and sexuality, which means they look not just at beliefs or church attendance alone, but also worship practices as well as involvement and integration within a religious community. So for clarity's sake, couples who pray together, read scripture at home, and attend church get busy better. Let me say that again. Couples who pray together, read scripture at home, and attend church get busy better. Some of you are already offended. Some of you don't even know what to do with yourselves right now. But if we're going to talk about it, what better place to talk about it than at church? And so to, to hear this, this may come as a shock to some of you, especially in light of, few, of a few recent surveys that have been conducted since 2018 that concluded that Americans at large are in a sex recession. Did you know this? Americans are in a sex recession, especially, hear this, among millennials. They are having less sex than their parents, hold your nose, and their grandparents were at the same age. Your grandmama, wait, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that to you this morning. I'm going to spare you this morning the gory details. But, but there are several reasons for this being the case. And it goes without saying a huge culprit of this is social media. More access and more apps, but less sex. More access, more apps, but less sex amongst millennials. But one group seems to be doing all right. One group seems to be doing okay in another article entitled, do church ladies really have better sex? <laughs> it says this, contrary to a popular notion of religion holding someone back from sexual fulfillment, religious worship in church and at the home might actually set some free in terms of experiencing a sexually satisfying relationship. Another report stated that united religious couples experience higher emotional closeness, commitment, and partner virtues. Their sexual satisfaction stem in part from an added spiritual closeness that bolsters their physical and emotional connection. And so here's what I want to say. Following religion patterns, religious patterns within a relationship, meaning reading scripture together, praying and discussing faith at home, attending church services, if more people knew this, I promise you the church would be packed may help cultivate this relational richness imbuing home life with an added measure of sanctification. And if you are shocked, the Corinthians would have been shocked about this too because the Corinthians lived in a culture that was steeped, that was steeped in sexual immorality. Sex outside of marriage was commonplace. It, it was common for men to hire prostitutes for sex, including married men. 
It was so commonplace, it was to be expected. And you may ask, why would that be the case that even married men were were expected to go and hire a prostitute for sex because the Corinthian culture believed that you could not experience sexual fulfillment in the context of marriage. And many people in our culture today believe the same thing. They believe the same thing. And Paul writes to them to let them know that that's not true at all. But that culture was so prevalent that it influenced the attitudes and perspectives, even in the church. And so I get it in a way because what happens when a person lives in a culture so long that, it, that, that a particular stronghold pervades everything about the culture. There's a stronghold in that culture. They've lived in it for so long, but then you have this newfound faith that speaks against it. Now you have to live in this tension between what I used to do and how I used to think and now what my newfound faith says and what tends to happen when a person gets saved for the first time and and, and they came out of the world or came out of some sort of culture that, that had a stronghold, what tends to happen is a person goes from one extreme to the next. Now, what you used to do becomes completely bad to you and it becomes nasty to you. You want nothing to do with it because of this newfound faith. And Paul is writing to them to strike a balance in between to say, no, don't go to the other extreme. Sex is not bad because God created sex. This is is God's creation. And so the extreme that, that was held in this church were two things. There was hedonism, which means I can do it anytime with anybody I want, whenever I get ready to. I can do it with whoever I want, whenever I want. It does not matter. But then there was asceticism. This is what the religious people were saying. They were saying, now that we're saved, we should have sex with anybody, including our spouses. And so there's these two extremes that are, that are going on in the church, have sex with anyone I want, and then there's have sex with no one. There's two extreme, and people were making significant lifestyle changes based off of these fringe ideologies about sex, even going as far as divorcing their spouses because they got saved. And Paul points that neither perspective is, per, is correct, that, that, that both perspectives are a bit off. But here's the thing. Sex is not an idol, and it shouldn't be an idol but it also shouldn't be avoided. Shouldn't be avoided. So let's address the elephant in the room because I can tell by the way you're looking at me. Sex is not off the table in church. Sex is not off the table in church. Church is not the most inappropriate place to discuss sex. It's actually the most appropriate place to discuss it. But so many of us grew up in church where you you don't talk about that. You don't talk about it. But if we look at the Bible... It appears in Genesis chapter 2. It, it, it's, it's been around from the beginning. Sexual marriage, sex in marriage is actually God's creation. When we look at Genesis chapter 2 verse 24, here's what he says. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife and they become one flesh. What do you think one flesh means? The one flesh union is a sexual union. God created us as sexual beings. Let me set you free. Let me set you free. Set you free. God created you to desire sex. You're not strange. You're not an alien from outer space. This is how God created us. But what we have to understand is this sex actually points to something. 
a greater reality. It is just a shadow of something that is greater. It is more than what meets the eye. The Bible puts sexuality within the context of marriage as a primary illustration and a picture of oneness. It is a picture of oneness. God created sex within marriage for a few reasons, procreation and pleasure. Don't stay off in the space for procreation and pleasure, but with parameters. But with parameters. Why? So God can preserve its purpose. So God can preserve its purpose. But problems will always arise when we use God's purposes and go outside of the parameters. So let me tell you this, the culture cannot solve the problem or answer the ultimate questions of what it did not create. And this is what is happening here. Paul is addressing something that they wrote to him in a letter, and it says, it is good for man not to use a woman for sex. This is what they were saying. And Paul, Paul doesn't entirely disagree with that notion that a man shouldn't use a woman for sex, especially if he's not married to the woman. But, but what they're proposing or believing is that sex should be avoided even in marriage. And Paul is writing to them to say, no, that, that's preposterous. Don't avoid sex in your marriage. Oh, are you crazy? There was an insane amount of temptation in Corinth. It was prostitutes all over the place. They worshiped a sex goddess in Corinth. So Please don't get into a marriage and say, we shouldn't have sex because we're trying to be spiritual and religious. Paul is like, you're not strong enough to avoid sex in your marriage. There's temptation outside. So if there's any place that you should be doing it, it's within the context of marriage. So sexual immorality was so, so common in Corinth that to now deny the gift of, of sex in marriage is not only unbiblical, it's unwise. That's not even smart. And here's what it says in verses 2 through 4. But because sexual immorality is so common, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife, and each woman should have sexual relations with her own husband. A husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise a wife to her husband. A wife does not have the right over her own body, but her husband does. In the same way, a husband does not have the right over his own body, but his wife does. And so that strategy of celibacy in marriage Ain't a good one, no matter how spiritual you think you are. And what he's saying is, don't put your marriage to the test. But I love what Paul does here when he says that both of you have rights and both of you have duties. Do you see what the Bible is doing here? They're putting men and women on equal footing. They're putting men and women on equal footing. Both have dignity, both have worth, and both have value. And the Bible is doing that. But culture would have you believe that the Bible is oppressive and repressive, and the Bible is keeping you from something, and the Bible is mean to women. No, the Bible puts men and women on the same equal footing. They both have dignity, they both have value, and they both have worth. And in a marriage, they both have the right over their spouse's bodies, both men and women. That is equal, that is equality, and that is dignity for both sexes. For both. And so when Paul says this, that is a radical idea because obviously you can imagine in that culture, men dominated everything. So when the Bible writes and says that women have equal footing with men, that is a radical and countercultural idea. But that's just what the Bible is. It puts everybody on the equal playing field, even in matters of sexuality. And so he's saying, look, men are not the only one with sexual needs. And men are not the only one that are subject to sexual temptation. Church should have said amen. Because what tends to happen when you have messages about this, we think it's all centered on men. As if women are exempt. 
but they're not. When he says they should fulfill their marital duty, he's saying essentially give back that which is owed. Pay up. (laughs) (laughs) And you hear the word duties, duties and rights, and and your liberal self says, your liberal self says, that sounds antiquated and and, and archaic to me. That, that, That offends my sensibilities. But here's where we recover the beauty of biblical marriage. Here's where we recover the beauty. It's not in the context of something that is demanding and oppressive. Sex is not a bargaining chip to use to get somebody to do yard work. (laughs) Or to get a new refrigerator. it's, it's It's not something that you withhold to punish somebody when you're mad at them. But it's also not, yep, 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 there you go. I was waiting for y'all to wake up. Okay, we're here now. 1102, we're here now. But even when you see rights and duties, it doesn't mean that it could be sex on demand. Because it's not rooted in demand, it's rooted in love. And so let me say this, when some of you hear this, it hurts you because I always want to address this when talking about sex. There's grace for sexual brokenness. And I want to say this, and it always gets quiet in church, but, but I don't want to assume that no one in here has ever dealt with sexual trauma because some people have, some to no fault of their own. Some of you have dealt with rape, molestation, child abuse. Some of you have dealt with that. The statistics will bear that out that if in a room with this many people in there, there are quite a few people who have dealt with that, and some even as children. And so I want to just say this, the next step for you as a believer if, if even the idea of sex, even in marriage, is a little off-putting to you, seek the Lord about it. Be honest about where you are. Seek the Lord. Then seek counsel. Seek the Lord. Seek counsel. Be honest about what you're dealing with and let God meet you in that place of brokenness. If you're married and you have a spouse, this is something that both of you should discuss. And so we see rights and duties. This is not about subjecting someone to something. Here's what you need to understand about marriage. It is in the context of self-giving service. It's in the context of self-giving service. Remember that marriage and sex in marriage points to something. It points to something. It, it is serving someone. It is serving the other person. It is serving that is focused on the satisfaction and the needs of the other party. But yet we've been taught that you get married to have somebody meet your needs. No, you don't get married to have somebody meet your needs. You get married to meet the needs of somebody else. What, what, really, what really is God's design is for us as married people to go and try to meet the desires of the person that we're in relationship with. So if you are looking to get married because you want somebody to supply all of your needs according to their riches and glory, then you got the wrong idea. You go into marriage as a servant that you serve someone else the same way that Christ has served you. But if you go in it with selfish motives and selfish ambitions, you are already starting off on the wrong foot. Let me tell you something. Marriage ain't about you. Marriage ain't about your spouse. Marriage is about God who called you to be married. And so we have to be clear on that. We have to be clear. And so when we think about this self-giving love, this is what it does. Self-giving service. Love fleshes itself out in self-giving service to someone else. When you love someone, you want to give to them. 
And this is the context. So we hear rights and duties. It's not about demanding. It's about I want to do this because I love the other person. I want to serve them in the best way that I know how. So let me say this. When you become a Christian, you enter into the service industry. Whether you like it or not, you are in the service industry. Both people, when they're married, are coming together to do outdo one another in serving. It is an abandoning of my own autonomy and beautifully giving up my autonomy for the sake of the other person. Marriage is not about what's in it for me. I'm giving you the game. Some of y'all looking at me like, nah, player. I was just watching 90 Day Fiance. And Love is Blind on Netflix. You better turn off Netflix and get in the Word. So we read duty and rights, read it in the context of beautiful, God-glorifying, self-giving service. And so then the question becomes, how can I serve my partner in this particular way? Or how can I serve my spouse in all things? So sex within marriage is a means of serving your spouse. It points to something and it reminds us of something. It reminds us of Jesus and his relationship with his bride, who he served to the point of death, even death on the cross. He gave up his rights and did not exploit or take advantage. He emptied himself and gave up his own needs to serve his undeserving, adulterous bride. He gave his life for her to serve her and meet her deepest need, which was salvation and forgiveness. And if we get this one simple idea, we have a better understanding of marriage and a better chance of marital survival. More than you need relationship goals, you actually need the gospel. I want goals. No, you need the gospel. Because goals means nothing if it's not rooted in what God has already done for us. Marriage is not about the two individuals. It points to something. Ephesians 5 calls it the mystery that is profound, the love between Christ and his bride, the church. It is self-giving service done out of love for God and love for your spouse. But Paul has a deeper issue here he's trying to address, and that is this. If married people aren't making it happen, it opens it up for an opportunity for Satan to come in and undermine your marriage. Verse 5, look at it. Do not deprive one another except when you agree for a time to devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again. Otherwise, Satan may tempt you because of your lack of self-control. When the word says deprive, that means stop defrauding someone out of what is properly theirs. I didn't write the Bible. It's just in here. Let me say this, and it's going to sound taboo in church. I know you're not supposed to say this in church, but a husband and wife should have sex often enough so that neither is frustrated or tempted to go outside of marriage. Man, I, I feel a prophetic gift just reading these faces. I don't know if y'all, y'all faces are, re, are a whole book. Some faces are saying, well, I already do this, Pastor. And I ain't talking about married people either. The only exception when this should happen is if both, it literally says if both partners agree that for a limited time, we'll back off of each other 
so that we can seek the Lord while he may be found. (laughs) But even that is not mandatory. He doesn't say you better stop and go pray for a while. He just says if you want to stop and go pray, y'all better agree that that's what you're doing. Both people need to agree on this. Are y'all here? Are you okay with me preaching the Bible this morning? Is this okay with y'all? Okay. Because prolonged periods of inactivity is a means of temptation. And here's Paul's solution. Married people should get busy regularly. And some of y'all looking like, man, come on, Pastor, this is inappropriate in church. But you, does that mess up with your desires, though? You should be glad that the Bible says this. But sex is for you to enjoy, but also to ward off temptation. It pleases God. He does not assume that people that are married have the incredible amount of self-control in the area of sex, but he's encouraging them to frequently enjoy the good gift that God has given them. We have to get out of this mindset that for Christians, this is nasty and something we don't talk about or something that we don't do, something that's oppressive and restrictive and and that is better outside in the world. That's a lie from Satan. That's a lie from Satan. I'm going to show you something. I'm going to read you some poetry. This guy, this guy named Solomon, this dude named Solomon, he wrote this. He had this book called Song of Solomon. and He wrote this in the fourth chapter of, it, of his book. It, it might be, you might have a copy of it. You don't even know you have a copy of it. He wrote this, Song of Solomon, chapter 4. He said this. This is him talking to his bride. You are my private garden, my treasure, my bride, a secluded spring, a hidden fountain. Verse 13, read it for yourself. Verse 13, read it for yourself. Your thighs, I didn't write that, it's in your Bible. A shelter paradise of pomegranates with rare spices, henna with nard, nard and saffron, fragrant calamus and cinnamon, with all the trees of frankincense and myrrh and aloes and every lovely spice. You are a garden fountain, a well of fresh water streaming down from the Lebanon's mountains. She said, talk that talk, boy. Then in verse 16, she responds in verse 16. And here's what she says. Awake, north wind. I'm going to let you interpret them tones. She said, awake, north wind. Rise up, south wind. Blow on my garden. Spread its fragrance all around. Come into your garden, my love, and taste its finest fruits. Let me tell you something. They ain't talking about a real garden. Does this sound repressive to you? Does this sound boring to you? Does this sound like people who ain't interested to you? This sounds exciting. It sounds tantalating and scintillating to me. (laughs) And this is in your Bible, which means that sex is to be enjoyed. It's not dirty and it's not ungodly. It is a gift from God. But even more than that, it is a bridge to God. Mm, it's a bridge to him because it creates a hunger in you for something more beautiful and more satisfying. So when you have that desire and that hunger for sex, that reminds you of something. That reminds you of a longing that can only be filled by God. It points us to something. I want to read you what 
Dan Allender and Tremper Longman wrote in a book called Intimate Allies. Here's what they wrote. God gave us sex to arouse and satisfy a hunger for intimacy. Sexuality arises a desire for union. Sexual consummation satisfies the desire, but it also mysteriously creates a hunger for more. Not only for more sex, but also a taste of ultimate union, the final reconciliation with God. So I want to say this. The only time it should be uncomfortable is if it is being done outside of the context in which God intended And Paul understood the temptation to sexual immorality so well that he took a moment to address the unmarried people in verses 6 through 9. And here's what he says. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all people were as I am, but each has his own gift from God. One person has this gift, another has that. I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain as I am. But if they do not have self-control, they should marry, since it's better to marry than to burn with desire. And I want to say this. The apostle Paul is a single man. But he's not single and miserable. He's not single and discontent with his life because he's not married. He's content where God has him. But he's honest. He's honest, though, that that this, this, this thing that I have is a gift from God. This gift of singleness and celibacy is a gift from God. But what he's not doing is he's not exalting marriage over singleness. And he's not exalting singleness over marriage. Let me say this in church. Married people are not better than single people. Married people don't have a closer connection to God than single people do. And single people don't have more connection to God than married people do. Both are on equal playing field. Both are precious gifts that the Lord gives us. And so the church has to do a better job than treating single people like they're lepers. Single people are not lepers. They're called and used by God. They're sons and daughters of the Most High God. They are worthy of value and dignity and self and respect. And so we must treat single people as such. We cannot treat them like a separate class of people because they have not been married yet and we cannot exalt married people as if they've reached the epitome because half of married people want to be single and single people want to be married so Paul says I wish some of you were like I am single meaning that I can desire and I can devote all of my time to God I can serve the Lord with my free time But he realizes that he has a gift, a gift of singleness and a gift of celibacy. This is not his willpower. He's not like, oh, I'm just strong. No, he's like, this is a gift from God. This is outside of myself. And and guess what? He has the gift of singleness and celibacy, but that doesn't mean something's wrong with him. Just because somebody ain't sex crazed like you are don't mean something wrong with them. Doesn't mean that they are attracted to the, to, the, to the same sex because they ain't sex crazed like you are. Some people just have a gift. But Paul is clear, not everybody has that gift. Some of y'all should have said amen right there. Yep. Your face says amen. If you don't sense a call to be married, don't feel the pressure to be married. Don't let church and purity culture force you into something that you don't feel called to. If you, if, if, if you like having your juice in the refrigerator like it was before you left for work, there's nothing wrong with you. If you want to leave your bed unmade because nobody else will see it when you come home, that's good for you. If you want all sides of the bed, that's between you and God. There's nothing wrong with you. But if you don't have the gift, you need to discern that you don't have the gift. And seek the Lord in that area. Because he says it's better to marry than to burn 
Meaning it's better to marry than to have this unrelenting passion and desire to have sex and can't fulfill your sexual desires. I want to say this. If you have sexual desire, that doesn't make something wrong with you. It just makes you human and makes you normal. It makes you who God made you to be. I'm trying to set you free here today. But even if you have sexual desire, sexual immorality is not without consequence. You may have the desire, but the Bible does not give us the authority to go outside of the context in which God puts sex in. No one can excuse premarital sex by claiming not to have the gift of celibacy. Well, you said I had a gift. Don't settle into sexual immorality. Now, I want to say this. If you have, God's grace is sufficient to forgive you. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So if your guilt is just on top of you right now, just in your brain, tap dancing on your mind and your heart, I want to set you free. If you seek the Lord and you repent, you turn to him and trust him, trust in his provision for your life, you are forgiven. Who the Son sets free is free indeed. I want to say this, not in my notes, but no one here is innocent of sexual immorality. Maybe you didn't have sex with outside of marriage. Maybe you didn't do something. But, but if you have a brain and you live in this fallen world, you've had an impure thought before. You've looked improperly at some point in your holy life. But God's grace is sufficient. Here's what I would say. Pray for and practice self-control. Self-control is a gift, a fruit of the Holy, of the, of the holy Spirit. If you have the Holy Spirit, then you can practice the gift of self-control. We all can. Paul does not deny the difficulty and the challenge of being single and not having the gift of singleness. It is incredibly, let me free you, it is incredibly hard to be single and celibate when you don't have a gift. It can feel like pain and torment not to fulfill your desires. Just stating the obvious. But seek to live a biblically single life in anticipation of God's provision for you. Seek to live it biblically. Here's what you need to know. The meaning of life is not found in sexual gratification. Your sexual desire is not your identity. It's not, it's not who you, it's not who you, it's a part of you, but it's not who you are. Your identity is in Christ. Your identity is not in your attraction, whether that be same sex or opposite sex. Your identity is in Christ Jesus. Let me tell you this, marriage will not fix your sexual issues. When I get married, this is going to be solved. No, it's not. It's not. Deal with it now or it will deal with you later. Let me say that again to the people in the back that's looking down and don't want to look at my, make eye contact with the pastor. Deal with it now or it will deal with you later. Sex alone is not a reason to get married. And it definitely won't keep you married. And so Paul then transitions to address in the last six verses to people who are already married. Let's read 10 through 16. To the, to the married, I give this command, not I but the Lord. A wife is not to leave her husband, but if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to divorce his wife. But I, this is Paul, not the Lord, say to the rest, if any brother has an unbelieving wife, 
and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. Also, if any woman has an unbelieving husband and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce her husband. For the unbelieving husband is made holy by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, then let him leave. Brother, sister is not bound in such cases. God has called you to live in peace. Wife, for all you know, you might save your husband. Husband, for all you know, you might save your wife. And here's what Paul, why Paul is saying is some women were thinking of leaving their spouses, their unbelieving spouses, because of their new faith. They got saved and they thought, man, if I'm entangled with this dude, he's going to make me unholy. If I'm married to this unbeliever, I just got saved. I'm married already and I just got saved, but my husband didn't come along. Or I'm married and I just got saved and my wife does not come along. She does not believe what I believe. She does not receive and accept the good news about what Christ has done for us. Then, then my temptation is to leave her because she doesn't believe what I believe. And Paul says, don't do that. Paul says, don't do that. Paul says, do, do, do not divorce that unbelieving spouse. P- Paul says that, 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 that God, God's design for marriage is not to end in divorce. That's not to say that things don't happen where you have to walk away from a marriage. That's not to say that. But, but, but all things being considered, he's saying if it's inconvenient, don't get divorced. You, you don't get divorced because of inconvenience. He follows the teaching of Jesus, and here's what Jesus said in Matthew 19 and 9. Jesus said this, I tell you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Jesus permits divorce in the case of adultery, but even then, he doesn't even demand divorce. He doesn't demand it. And I was sharing this with Kanika. We were looking over this because I I didn't want to say anything outlandish this morning because you know how I can say something crazy. And when looking at verses 10 through 11, she said this to me, that, that if you read 10 and 11, it can sound like a punishment from God because you have to stay in a marriage. That, that, that God is mad at you or God absolutely hates divorce in all circumstances. But, but the purpose of what she said was the purpose of 10 and 11 is not saying uh, to remarry. Is to, to, it's not saying don't get a divorce, just not, just not to get a divorce. But what he's saying is if you get a divorce, remain unmarried, meaning leave the door open. The reason why he says this, leave the door open for possible reconciliation because reconciliation is what God desires. So he's saying if you do get a divorce, don't automatically assume and up and jump and then remarry. Leave room for reconciliation if it's possible. But we know it's not always possible. But that's not God's design for us to get divorced. Marriage is intended to be a lifelong commitment. Remember that the marriage is not about the two people who are married. It's about God. And some of you say, man, the Bible seems so strict on divorce. No, the Bible is not just strict on divorce. It just has a very high view of marriage. It just holds marriage in high regard. But if a person has gotten a divorce and they've done all they could to reconcile it, or if a person walks away without legitimate cause, there's grace in God for you. That if you repent and trust in the Lord, turn from whatever caused you to do that in the past, then God's grace is sufficient for you. Divorce is not something that, that, is not, that can't be forgiven. The blood of Jesus is powerful enough to cover all of our sins, including divorce. Are y'all here? And we should not treat divorced people as a separate lower class of people in church. Divorced people are not lepers. They're people. They're people. But here's what Paul says, 12 through 16. He's talking about 
people who are married, but they may think about getting a divorce because their spouse is not a believer at this point. And Paul is saying, if you do find yourself in a marriage with an unbeliever, meaning that you were married before you became a follower of Jesus, then try to stick it out. I want to say this because somebody could take this out of context. He says, if you are married already and you are married to an unbeliever, you, you are already married, you get saved. Your spouse does not get saved. This is what he's talking about. He's not saying if we're both unmarried and I'm saved and he's not, we're going to move forward with it anyway. This is not permission for a Christian to marry a non-Christian. This is not permission for a Christian to marry someone who you think may eventually become a Christian. I know it sounds unpleasant and unfriendly, but this is, I'm just telling you what it's not saying. This is, this is not for boyfriends and girlfriends, but for wives and husbands that got saved while they were already married. Please, 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 if you're dating... Don't think and magically hope and wish that somebody that you're dating that's not saved will at some point become a Christian because you're a Christian. Is it possible? Yes. But it's also possible that you can win a million dollars in Las Vegas at a craps table. It's possible, but it's highly unlikely. Because if marriage is already challenging... I can't imagine how much more it will be challenging to be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. You are inviting pain, torment, and suffering into your life unnecessarily. Oh, I'm just praying that he, I'm just praying about it. I'm just, stop praying. Some stuff you don't have to pray and get a prophetic word about. Some stuff you just need to read what the word says and do what it says. Oh, I'm just thinking maybe, maybe at some point if I just... Keep, keep serving the Lord. He's he going to come along. Or if I just keep serving the Lord, she, Sally going to get it together. No, Sally's not. Trust what God says. But if your unbelieving spouse who's not saved desires to stay in a marriage and they are at peace with you being a Christian and they want to keep the marriage, don't initiate divorce. He says, for the unbelieving spouse is made holy by the believing spouse. It's not meaning that they get some sort of spiritual transformation, but what it does mean is this is the greatest opportunity that they will ever have to hear and see the gospel of Jesus Christ, that you become the greatest witness to their salvation, that they get to see the gospel live and in living color by the life that you live, that it's possible for you to win that spouse over if they are not saved already, that by your actions and by your words, by your Christian life, it's actually a means of grace in their life to see the gospel on full display. They are living with the grace of God on full display. They're living with it. They see it. It is alive. It is active. They can actually see it. Now, you undermine that when you act like they act. But if you are being who God called you to be and your spouse sees that there is a possibility for them to be won by the gospel. Matter of fact, one theologian named Kanika Daniel said this. She says, in fact, the best witness a believing spouse can give to an unbelieving spouse is to maintain the marriage bond, which is in and of itself a picture of Christ's love for us and an eternal connection to his bride, which is the church. And what better way to witness what Christ has done for us? than to pursue somebody who's undeserving. I'm going to read this one scripture, then I'm, then I'm done. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 2 says this. 
In the same way, you wives must accept the authority of your husbands. Then even if some refuse to obey the good news, your godly lives will speak to them without any words. They will be won over by observing your pure and reverent lives. So I just want to say this. Marriage and sex is ultimately more about God than it is about us. It is not just to meet our needs, but to show off the glory of God in the gospel. Marriage and intimacy in this context is just a shadow, a glimpse of the committed, faithful, loving, forgiving, self-sacrificing, life-giving relationship that Christ has entered into with his people. Everything that you imagine in an ideal relationship to be could only pale in comparison to the relationship that we can have with God through his son Jesus. He loved you enough to die for your sins. So marriage is just a picture of that. So every time you see a marriage, every time you see love on display, it doesn't point to the people. It points to Christ and his love for you. You get married not to meet your own needs, but to meet the needs of another person and to show off the glory of God. And sex does the same thing. God gave us sex as a beautiful gift to enjoy in the context of marriage because it points to a reality of the ultimate fulfillment that we will have in a relationship with him. And if you're single today, let me tell you something. Even marriage won't give you the fulfillment that you already have in Christ Jesus. It is a good gift. It is a good desire. But we got to understand the purposes and reasons for, for why we do what we do. Anytime we do something outside of the context that God puts it in, we misappropriate and miscommunicate what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. But God calls us Christians to recover the beauty of what he created when he created male and female. When he said the two shall become one flesh, we have this opportunity to show it off to the world. That this love that a man has for his wife, this, this self-sacrificing love that, that, that will lay down his life for his bride and, and her submission, her willingness to yield her life under his authority is a picture of what we do every day under the banner of the Lord Jesus Christ and, and, and his love for us, his grace, his forgiveness, his long-suffering, his patience with us, his covering us with his life and his laying down his life for us is a beautiful picture that we get to show the world when we use marriage in the proper context. But when we don't do it, we communicate the wrong thing. We have a better story about sex. Because our story comes from God. And so when we think about marriage and sex, don't just think about it, but think about what it represents. Which is what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. Let us pray. We hope you enjoyed today's message. If it was a blessing to you, please consider visiting our website, outpouringorlando.com, to connect with us and to also give financial support. If you are ever in the Orlando area, we would love to serve and worship with you. Have a wonderful week.